Okay, cool. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for coming down and talking with us today. Good to be here, Mike. Dude, awesome. Okay, so we are going to try to explore something that's going to be a little bit difficult to unpack because um, what was the line we were talking about kind of in the prep for this is the line in the manifesto that says we're learning how to build software better by doing it and helping others do it, something like that. Is that, a, is that a close enough that paraphrase? Close enough. It's a close enough <laughs> paraphrase, right? So what we were joking about was the idea that leading Agile is um, is um, learning how to do Agile transformation better by doing it and helping other folks do it. And so that's kind of the spirit of what we're unpacking here a little bit. So we're going to introduce this new concept. I think what we're talking about, we're calling it organizations to summits. So let's start there. Well, I want you to talk to me a little bit about what we're doing with organizations, the summits, and then I'm going to wind us back and I'm going to start talking about some of the underpinnings of it. So give me an idea of, for the listeners what what you're doing in some of the large accounts we're working in. Yeah, so uh, we have some, it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, I've been here for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, when I joined five years ago, our mix was we had some bigs and we had some smalls and you know, in terms of our account mix. And, and uh, over the last five years, it's really more biased itself to very yeah. large organizations. Some really big really organizational big, transformations. Really companies. Companies. Yeah. Tens of thousands of people under mm-hmm. transformation moving to team, you know, to, to, to delivery and product teams. So um, what in that in that journey we've learned a lot. Uh, you know, um, there's a there was a comment like you made once on a phone call that I locked into, which is if your capabilities and your systems aren't aligned to your products your, so your customers and your markets, right? Your, mm-hmm. your practices don't matter. So you got to be careful around here when you just drop something because you never know who's going <laughs> to quote you and they keep quoting you. I heard quoting it. And you quoting it. Yeah. So we said something like if your organization or if your structures and your systems aren't organized around your customers in the market, you're going to fail. Or you just augmented it to your processes don't matter. Right. Right. So the process of Agile doesn't matter if your organization isn't aligned to your customers and markets. And so what we see in these very, very large customers is that, let's say small customers as well, is that um, generally they aren't aligned. Their systems, mm-hmm. their capabilities, their, their uh, you know, their value streams are not aligned to their to their markets and their customers. Um, but the, but taking them on that journey when there are dozen teams versus hundreds of teams mm-hmm. is a very different task. It's a very yeah. different problem. And so we're, we're learning a lot in this journey about how to take very large organizations and actually get them to the levels of business agility in that, in that definition, aligning yeah. their capabilities and their systems to their markets and customers and what that requires. Okay. One of the first insights, this is, I'm going to go back in history a little bit. So I have one kind of mega client in mind, and we were going through... And just so everybody knows, anybody who's maybe not intimately familiar with the leading agile model is that like everything kind of starts with teams, backlogs and working tests of software. And I know that sounds really small when you're talking about large scale transformation, but it's really like the most it's it's the smallest instantiation of this aligning um, your systems and structures to your customers and markets. The whole idea behind a scrum team is that you have this group of like six to eight people that owns the technology, that owns a singular business problem. They have this idea of a product owner that is feeding requirements and you can produce a working tested increment of software at the end of the day. And what we found is that a lot of the organizations we were going into, these really, really large organizations, the idea of a product was either like super gigantic 
or it was like so crazy small that like you really couldn't do anything with it. So what we started to do, maybe you can talk to this a little bit, is that rather than to try to come in and to untangle the product hierarchy or to untangle the value streams on day one because the organization just couldn't really fundamentally see it, we started organizing around business capabilities. Right, that became the language that we would use. We would organize around the business architecture. And I remember one of the first aha moments that that I had when we were we were working on this account together was the idea that when you organize around business capabilities, there's inherently dependencies between them that um, because because all of these different business capabilities have to have to be orchestrated in order to be able to um, have to be orchestrated in order to be able to deliver something of integrated value. And there was this moment where you were talking about once you organize around the business architecture and you form those kinds of teams, what you do is you expose the cost of the orchestration layers and you make the orchestration layers very, um, very explicit and very clear to where you can see how much the orchestration is costing you. And so that gives you the opportunity to at some point be able to take the business capabilities and to kind of go like, okay, where can we get the most cost savings? Let's reorganize around um, value streams. So, so what you're hunting, I'm not sure where you're going to go with this, but what, what, what we're hunting was there's certain things that you can do now in an early stage transformation to get it moving. But then later on, there's going to be some things that we might consider down the road once the organization has evolved. Talk to me about a little bit about that process of discovery you guys were going through there. So early on, actually, it was early on in my leading <clears> agile, <throat> um, you know, with, with the customer you're referencing, it was in my leading agile tenure it was pretty early. I was still mm -hmm. learning a lot about what we, what we do, what we think, how we approach, uh, you know, uh, the market and, and transformation. Um, I actually had the inclination due to my prior you know, experience largely, largely XP, largely XP, yeah. right? Okay. Um, so why can't we align to the value streams day one? Yeah, and so yeah. I pushed on that with with mm -hmm. this client, and mm -hmm. uh, what I realized there's a really big dog attached to that tail. Mm -hmm. um, so not only did we have uh, not yet the agency, the the transformation, let alone leading agile, the transformation mm -hmm. itself did not have the agency to go to the business and say we're going to reorganize you. Mm -hmm. which is effectively what that meant. Um, so the business wasn't convinced yet. A lot of people in IT weren't convinced yet. Uh, and uh, it really was a bridge too far with dependencies and funding and like the amount of, of the organization that would have had to have been changed just to make that change was profound. And it was frankly, it was too much, right? There would have been too much load on the organization, not enough trust in the organization, and it just would have failed. Mm -hmm. So the customer, uh, we you know we worked through that together, and we went uh, and we decided let's take the organization we have. And uh, you know, as I learned more about leading agile and how we worked, uh, and base camps and expeditions mm -hmm. and and how to how to do that work, um, how about we just take the organization that's that's largely ad hoc today, um, not super trustworthy, and we just get it to actually be able to say what it's going to be able to do and do it. So be predictable. So get to predictability. Yeah. And the focus was let's get to a rational system of delivery mm -hmm. um, that we can trust, we can count on, we put something in, we know we get out. Mm -hmm. um, Trustworthy system that so, you can delegate into. Yeah, that's yeah. really what it was. Uh, so we that became the focus. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that was also an immense 
undertaking. Yeah, huge. Multiple years just to get it to the point <laughs> yeah, of stability. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thousands of people. Um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. But it was also doable. It's mm-hmm. something that everybody could sign up to. Mm-hmm. So still a very large wave of change, mm-hmm. um, but also very successful uh, at the end of the day using, you know, using our approach. So uh, it was it was enough, mm-hmm. right? But it wasn't too much. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to take a step back and and for everybody's benefit, talk a little bit about the expeditions to base camp model. The original hypothesis behind this is that when you're looking at large scale organizational change, the there was this notional idea, I believe, and I think it's still in our um, community a lot, is that either we're going to train people on process and then like the organizational structures and the dependency management, all that stuff is going to is going to um it's going to self-organize away, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like there's like one class of of kind of approach to agile transformation that goes that way. Train people on agile, train people on mindset and culture, and they'll remove the impediments and the organizational structure will emerge. Um, and then one of the things we see a lot of times when we follow in behind some other consultancies is that they'll actually do these like lighthouse type projects where like they pull a whole bunch off to the side and they get like a pocket of agility but they haven't really dealt with the legacy organization at all. And so one of the things with Expeditions to Base Camps we were trying to do was trying to say, okay, what is the roadmap for being able to take an organization from point A to point B and to build trust along the way? Because so often when we go into these large companies, there's no organizational trust. So the one thing that we could consistently anchor on in these large organizations was organizing around the business architecture. So what we would do is we'd basically organize teams around the business architecture, deeply understand the dependencies between those teams, model the flow of value in like program and portfolio layers and kind of multi-tier architecture thing, and get everything from strategy to portfolio management to program uh, product management, all the way down to the execution level, um, incredibly explicit and, and just working in a very, very tight way. Now, and so kind of the way the story would go is that you would get the system predictable. Something expression you taught me is like, like we know we don't want the dependencies and we know we don't want it organized that way, but like everything above it is like a compensating control. So while in the presence of dependencies, while going through the initial stage of the transformation, we're putting some compensating controls in to be able to orchestrate the flow of value across all the different teams. Once we've stabilized the system, we've got it predictable. Then we start to think about how to reduce batch size, right? Get some of the release management, some of the technology constraints out of the way. Then we start to figure out how to break dependencies. Then we start to figure out how to fund encapsulated teams. And then we start to give the teams a little bit more room to inspect and adapt and market and listen to customers and things like that. That was the overarching arc. And it was actually a fairly, fairly powerful story, right? Because what it what it kind of did is it, it, and especially in some of these large enterprises, gave us some permission, some, some agency to be able to come in and to start making changes and to start making improvements that could show value really, really quick. So that's what you guys really did at scale, 12,000, 13,000 people really going through. Talk a little bit about that, that early stages of that journey. Yeah. So uh, what the, the base camp expedition, you know, framework approach system did for me, uh, I've been at, I've been doing transformation. Is it a framework approach or a system? I mean, you got to pick one. uh, Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) All three. Yeah. Um, So uh, I've been doing transformations for 19 years. And you and I go back to a mm-hmm. company called Pillar. Yep. And I remember back in the day with Pillar, a very much XP-based, extreme programming-based software, artisanship, you know, technical practices, clean coder type, type mm-hmm. of company. Um, everything was kind of, you know, um, 
to the metal if you're not test driving and doing continuous you know continuous integration and automated delivery pipelines and everything else you weren't kind of agile right? mm-hmm. that was our definition of it yeah and so um phones rang perfect ironically right <laughs> after we said don't do that. so um so we, we hired a, somebody, a change management consultant, ostensibly because we had large customers and we could do two or three teams at a time. Mm-hmm. No, we weren't that big. Um, but we had customers that were large scale. Mm-hmm. And so I would work with her and I would say, okay, how are we, what, what are we going to do to get an entire large insurance company or, you know, uh, route oriented services company to, you know, flipped over and transformed onto this agile stuff. And ostensibly, she kept coming back to me and talked about coaching the executives. We need mm-hmm. to coach the executives. I'm like, okay, got it, right? We need to coach the executives, but what are we going to do? We're going to coach them on. <laughs> so <laughs> what are we, no, we going to go yeah. do? Yeah. And and it just there was a cycle um, that we were both stuck in because neither of us could come up with that answer. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we take a large organization? Yeah, great, three, four teams can get those, you know, uh, really, you know, kicking butt. But how do we take a large organization and, and flip them uh, over to Agile? And so when, I, when we ran into, or when I kind of ran into to what you all were doing, um, it solved a few different problems for me that I'd struggled with at Pillar. One was how do I just not scale agile, but scale transformation? Mm-hmm. Like how do I have something that I can take and actually do N of, mm-hmm. you know, 10 or 20 of, mm-hmm. to move sets of teams to where they needed to go? Um, so it was, you know, it was uh, something I frankly wish I'd had, you know, 10 years prior. Um, it also solved the problem that you've talked about, which is, you know, what do you wrap teams around? Mm-hmm. So at scale, what does a team own, right? Mm-hmm. And when teams have to deliver together, a lot of the things I did in my early pillar days were very much, you know, could fit in one team. Mm-hmm. Uh, automate something that was, a, you know, was a spreadsheet or, mm-hmm. you know, do do some web app or something. Yeah. But as pillar grew and as our customers grew towards the end of that, um, what I realized was the problems were growing. And one, even one set of teams couldn't get those problems done, mm-hmm. couldn't, couldn't deliver those things to the customer. We didn't really have an approach for that. Yeah. We didn't have really a way to go. So having, um, having a way to understand how teams need to be organized mm-hmm. and orchestrated to deliver big problems yeah. at scale was also something that I thought was, was, uh, was very helpful. So, uh, and then the third thing I would say, um, was just the, you know, the, um, the one size doesn't fit all message was mm-hmm. super helpful for me. Right. That really drives from the quadrants where you have like predictive conversion, adaptive conversion, adaptive right. emergent, right? That kind of a thing. So yeah. I would have people, I would have customers at Pillar who were ERP programs. Mm-hmm. And here I am saying, if you're not test driving custom, you know, custom written code, mm-hmm. right? And you don't have continuous integration and end to end and travel light and all those things right. that XP espouses, it's kind of not for you. Yeah. Right? That was kind of my belief system back. Then. I didn't have a solution to that problem. Mm-hmm. So I liked the fact that there were, you know, uh, there was a kind of a delineation of how much business agility do we really need mm-hmm. um, based on what the business needs and the market, you know, the value propositions that that business is servicing. So maybe there's a place, you know, for teams uh, to work that aren't doing custom app dev yeah, in sure. an agile approach. So it solved all those problems for me. And as we took it into, uh, our, you know, as I started to take it into the customers uh, that I was working with, you know, in mm-hmm. my early days of leading Agile, um, just found it to be super powerful um, mm-hmm. to, to, to be able to have those conversations I could never have before. 
Um, I, I actually had something to go coach the executives mm -hmm. with, right? And to get them aligned. Um, so give them a way of doing it, a way of leading this transformation. Yeah. yeah. So rather than having a bunch of spinning compasses, I could get them aligned around the three things and, you know, system uh, first transformation versus right. practice or culture first. Um, I could get them aligned around how do we think about, uh, you know, the level of business agility and how do we form these teams and what do we form? I had all of that capability yeah. to go talk to executives, get them all pointing in the same direction. Yeah. And actually then have a scaled approach to come in. Because I think a lot of the leadership training has been how do you empower their teams and get out of the way? But the reality is that the executives that we're working with actually have to create the conditions so that the teams can be successful. And we had to give them guidance on what create um, conditions to go create. Yeah. yeah. Something I learned, uh, just uh, one of the conversations I learned to have with executives over time is that the, the results of your transformation aren't going to be determined by how well we teach somebody to do scrum. Yeah, for sure. They're going to be determined by how, by what you as a leadership team are willing and able to help your organization become. And you mm -hmm. have to lean in and own your transformation. You have to be an active participant yeah. and delegate it. It's not a leading agile transformation. It's your transformation and the importance of leadership. But you have to have leadership uh, A aligned and then they have to have something to do. Yeah. Um, you have to come to them with very concrete asks. And so uh, and, and it has to be, you know, uh, impact and there has to be options and recommendations and all of that. Um, mm -hmm. So as we were applying this and it was just super powerful to me, I mean, it got me uh, at levels of scale that I hadn't really um you know, achieved before in terms of moving, you know, organizations to agility. What I did start to notice was in that base camp progression, mm -hmm. um, there was a, a definite um, sort of dissonance that started to happen when we had uh, organizational focus on all of the base camps at once. Mm -hmm. So executives they aligned to it. They understood it. Yeah, because in theory, we could be taking some groups to base camp one and two, and some are working on three and four, and some are moving to five. Is that what you're Yeah, and so um, what we were finding, though, was that moving um, further in that journey mm -hmm. uh, was stretching and straining the organization uh, in, you know, in ways that it wasn't ready to handle yet. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were starting to push into things that it couldn't do. The organization couldn't actually take on. Mm -hmm. Like give me for example. Uh, well, so we had, um, an early go where we were trying to change, uh, you know, so we were, we were taking a set of teams that were, um, targeted towards higher base camps. And we wanted to move them into more of a value aligned structure, mm -hmm. but the business wasn't Got it. Wasn't convinced. Got it. They were like, you know, you're not going to change how we're set up. Yeah. You know, um, you're actually talking about changing our business. I imagine like funding models and how we do budgeting. And funding models, planning and architectural like and yeah. regulatory stuff. So architectural yeah. processes, um, we just didn't have that level of trust in the system yet. Yeah. And so uh, it was to take on all of that was overwhelming yeah. for the organization. So leaders had to think through space and time out to the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was just overwhelming. But I remember sitting with a CIO and saying, okay, here's all, you know, just to test and see how much, how much change he wanted to take on. Yeah. So here's the things you're going to have to go change. And what he said to me was, Chris, tell me what I have to do in the next 12 months to not right. die. Yeah, sure. And so like that gave me his, his, 
time horizon that he wanted to work in. Well, a lens that <clears throat> I'm actually going to step, um, I'm going to take a couple steps back because I, I, I think I see where you're heading on this. But one of the things that I thought you actually referenced it, um, it was a little bit of a throwaway comment, but you actually referenced it. I think it's pretty important. The difference between doing agile at scale and doing transformation at scale. I thought that was a fascinating distinction. And we've actually codified that internally. We talk about system of delivery, which is basically a scaled agile framework um, and all the patterns associated with that. But then this idea of a system of transformation about how do you systematically move people through getting from, you know, base camp one to two to three to four from just generally from point A to point B. Um, one of the things that I've talked about in my, um, you know, all the various flavors of the agile transformation talks I've given over the last 10 years is this idea that that transformation isn't about teaching people process. It's really fundamentally about getting the ecosystem in place so the process will actually work. And what that typically means is that you need team-based delivery models, you need to have lean Kanban-based flow um, governance frameworks, you have to have agile metrics. But the real, the interesting part of it is is that you really have to start figuring out how to break dependencies in the organization to be able to get to kind of true business agility, right? So the idea is, is that we're gonna form teams, we're gonna build backlogs, we're gonna do structured governance and metrics, we're gonna break dependencies over time. So <clears throat> what, I, what I think, where I think you're kind of going with this a little bit is that in an early stage transformation or even mid-stage transformation, like where, where you guys were in with this, this customer, is, is that the, the, the bigger things in the organization like governance, compliance, um, budgeting, accounting, enterprise architecture, I think you mentioned, those things can't change overnight because as we're going through and we're making these changes at the execution level, um, the organization's not at a sufficient critical mass to be able to kind of bifurcate those processes and create multiple instances of it. So what I think, I think this is how you were describing it to me. It's like what the organization is doing is it's allowing certain aspects of it to become more agile, but it's allowing those to operate in more of an exception mode. Does that make sense? Does that resonate with you? How it, I said that? It does. Okay. Um, so there are things that we have to do, you know, with all of our customers mm -hmm. you know, to, to get back to the three things, right? Teams, mm -hmm. so stable teams, uh, prioritized backlogs, yeah. working tested product. And uh, most of our customers, all of our customers, when we find them, you know, you could characterize them as a hundred gallon bucket with a thousand gallons of work to do, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so for sure. they're, they're all universally mm -hmm. overwhelmed. And so we have to do a little bit of ruthless prioritization when we start. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, you know, we have to be able to get them to where they can actually work at a sustainable pace. Mm -hmm. Um, because if we try to introduce practice or try to do an expedition, but where they're still expected to do a thousand gallons of work with a hundred gallons of capacity, not much is going to change. Mm -hmm. So there's things that we need to do up front to just enable us to get going. Yeah. Right. That we can even get started. If we can't stabilize teams, we've had other customers who don't see the, the line, they don't line of sight to how they'd even stabilize teams. Mm -hmm. They want to have seven people on seven teams or mm -hmm. eight teams, and they want to have everybody allocated <clears throat> to the last half hour. Yeah. So there are sets of conditions that have to be in place, but the change of those conditions isn't necessarily, the system isn't trustworthy yet to where you could make that a pervasive change. Right. So as we're doing a slice of the organization in an expedition, we can install the conditions, the new organizational ecosystem within that, but it would be risky in many cases to do that mm -hmm. uh, across the board when we don't have those other 
areas actually actively in coached expeditions. Right. So it's not safe yet to remove those controls. So we have to do it slice by slice. It's one of the reasons I really like, you know, the way that the way that we work in those vertical slices. Mm -hmm. Um, there are other conditions where it's a little bit like a soft cutover versus a hard cutover. Like mm -hmm. there are things when we change a funding model as an example, um, especially in a publicly held company, you can't have multiple sets of books. Mm -hmm. So if we were going to start to change funding models too early and that were to affect how that organization was reporting to the street and having, you know, to mm -hmm. explain things to its auditors and have people sign off. We would be, in effect, um, doing the whole organization, changing the whole funding model before the whole organization was organized that mm -hmm. way and was able to operate that way and was able to account for, you know, the things it needs to account for that way. Mm -hmm. So certain things have to be done when you're at critical mass. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have to be done once you've achieved a certain base camp versus uh, other things, you know, have to be done kind of as an enabler, mm -hmm. um, but not necessarily pervasively. Yeah. And so it's when do we take the thing that we're creating exceptions for mm -hmm. and make it the way we work now? Because right. enough of the organization has progressed to a level where it's trustworthy. Yeah. And it can operate in that frame and not induce risk or or, you know, whatever the, the exposure would be to the organization. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's fascinating because what's what's kind of emerged out of this, so you know, a little bit of backstory is got the leadership team together in Snowbird, Utah. It was really kind of cool to get to go out into the conference room where the manifesto was signed and uh, to, to start beating our heads together a little bit and trying to solve some of this. And so this is, this is as the story starts to emerge, is, is in my head, like literally my head, we had this really clear linear story. And it was, and like most things, it's never quite as linear as, as, as you talk about it. But it was a way of telling the story. We would talk about base camp one, get predictable, base camp two, reduce batch size, base camp three, start to break dependencies, start to do team or organizational based funding, and then, you know, change kind of strategy to this invest to learn thing. So we talked about that. And so Chris and I are literally going toe to toe. And he's like, he's like, he goes, there's something else besides base camps. And I would argue, I'm like, nope, it's there. It's there. It's there. It's all in there. And so where Chris and I kind of landed is that in a lot of, <clears throat> let's say, smaller transformations, maybe even 100, couple hundred people, something like that, that, that you could actually address a lot of the things that you're talking about while you were bringing expeditions to base camps, because you could run enough concurrent base camps that, or excuse me, expeditions that were all moving somewhat simultaneously. So as you move the expeditions into the base camps, you would deal with the governance issues and the compliance issues and all the different things that you needed to do. But what's fascinating is when you get up into this, this kind of like this ultra large scale, and by that I meaning thousands, you know, tens of thousands of people, um, there were certain things that you couldn't change. So, you know, right away. So what the interesting aha moment and what it revealed was is that is that there's the expedition to base camp. And then what we started to, to call it, this is where it's going to get hard to hand wave. You almost wish you had like a whiteboard in this kind of discussion. But we talked about organizations to summits. Right? And so that's the new language that we're, we're starting to play with a little bit. And the general idea is, is that is that you start to move expeditions to base camps. And then once you get a sufficient amount of the organization operating in this new way, um, that becomes the new norm. It becomes the rule. So while we were making um, exceptions to accommodate the early expeditions, now what we need to do is we need to change the rules to accommodate this new way of working. 
Does that make sense? It does. Talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing there. So uh, what <clears throat> what's if you think about what you just said in terms of there's the system of delivery, which we're building slice by slice. We're mm -hmm. taking expeditions to base camps and depending on what level of business agility you need, you know, the base camp that you're destined to, to, to reach. But then there's the organizational design that cares for or kills mm -hmm. one or the other. That yeah, system let's delivery, on right? that. I want to come back to that. Cares so, for or kills. Right. That's pretty so, profound. So it, there's, a, there's an ecosystem around that system mm -hmm. of delivery that was designed because, ostensibly, because the thing that we're replacing wasn't trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's funny. Uh, Doc does, Doc Norton does a talk about how organizations are designed to protect themselves from their employees. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's some truth to there's that. There's some truth to yeah. that. But what I think <clears throat> we're seeing more is they're designed to protect themselves against their system of delivery. Okay. So their system of delivery is not trustworthy. Therefore, they need to have a lot of control structures right. in place because people don't have clarity about what the right thing to do is ah. or don't have the ability to do the right thing. I want to drive that point home. So so if the system isn't trustworthy, basically meaning you can't delegate a known amount into it and get a predictable outcome, then that's what's driving kind of a lot of the compliance and regulation and command and control things is when you don't have a trust system, trustworthy system of delivery. Right. So, okay. so um, people will try to get their jobs done. And in many cases, the organizations we start with that we run, that we, uh, that we, you know, that hire us, um, those people are heroes. They have to fight the organizational design and figure out how to get their job done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they do it well, they're lauded as heroes. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, they're probably, yeah. um, something else happens. Yeah. But, so I don't think organizations are designed to protect themselves from their employees. I think they're designed their employees are trying to do the right things despite the organizational design. So they put controls in place mm -hmm. to control their employees ostensibly okay. within that. Okay. So it's not that people have, you know, are incompetent or evil or anything like that. It's that the system they exist in uh, drives them into decisions and behavior that, mm -hmm. that needs to now then be controlled. Sure. And so you get into this really tight, you know, self-reinforcing cycle. So as we're moving through though, um, and we're starting to uh, create trustworthiness in the system. The system can, it can predict how much mm -hmm. work it's going to get done. It can tell you when it's going to get it. Mm -hmm. um, it can actually change if, if the situation changes. What happens is that you have now a new system of delivery, but you still have the old ecosystem. Yeah. And this is where I think a lot of people <clears throat> get hung up because they'll feel like they're doing agile right, but they can't get all those other people out of the way. To, and it's like you end up with a dual mode system, like legacy project management wrapped around scrum teams or something like that in the small. Yeah. And so everybody's trying to do the right thing. Yeah. You have two systems that weren't designed for each other. Um, so and you're moving into this, you know, the, the further you go, the more trustworthy you become. Mm -hmm. and, and But yet this, the ecosystem around it wants to still control you as if you're a threat. Mm -hmm. And so what we find is that you know, back to the earlier conversation, there are elements of that system that have to remain in place. Um, but we need within the slices we're working, those elements would actually be detrimental, if not fatal to what we're trying to do. So they operate in the exception. Right? So we operate in yeah. exceptions. So yeah. we have to be very careful about, you know, when we remove those controls, because 
if we're working with a thousand people at one time and there's 10,000 people in the organization, then 9,000 people's worth of control mm -hmm. is lost. Right. Right. And it's actually very dangerous. So, so we just have to be super intentional about, uh, and the nice thing about, uh, for me, the base camp expedition, you know, kind of model, the, the, the capability that we have is it's very defined what slices mm -hmm. we're taking on. It's very dis defined where those slices are, mm -hmm. what exceptions we need. Mm -hmm. And then when we hit a critical mass of the, of those, you know, teams and capabilities in the organization, we can start to look at deprecating the larger ecosystem controls and replacing them with things that promote trust, things that promote competency, things that promote clarity um, across the organization. Mm -hmm. So that can be more about uh, investment and learning and improvement versus, you know, control. Mm -hmm. So, well, let's see if we can get a little specific because in this particular client um, that we're kind of using as our reference client for the sake of this conversation, there are others, but there's one that we clearly have in mind because it's very far down the path with us right now. So you got most everybody in the organization to about base camp one, base camp two, which basically means in, in our language that they are predictable. They can, you can basically put in known inputs and get in known outputs. Um, they can deliver what they say they're going to do on the time horizons that they commit. And then they've also gotten to the point where they can operate in smaller batches, which means that they can start to put software into market faster and be able to learn from it, be able to inspect and adapt, right? And so in like these aren't teams, these are these are whole organizations that can make and meet commitments and put stuff into market fast and inspect and adapt. So what kind of, um, you know, even though that some of them hadn't moved all the way to, you know, basically at three, four, and five, what kinds of controls, once you had predictability into the system, were you able to start to untangle? So the... Uh Without getting too deep, I guess, yeah. into, into this customer, uh, many of our customers have, you know, they have financial controls, uh, the way that they fund, the way mm -hmm. that they plan, um, the way that they account for funding, mm -hmm. um, you know, those, those controls are starting, you know, they start to become the bottleneck. Mm -hmm. Now we can execute. But we've got a lot of people running around trying to account, you know, find money, account for money. Um, so there becomes a, a whole focus on funding, mm -hmm. on money. And that focus can be uh, also, like we find it detrimental that uh, when you have, you know, a, a budget that's meant for new features and a budget that's meant for break, fix, and maintenance, mm -hmm. those have different names in different companies, that incentivizes a system to where now we're going to, because we want to control that. You have X dollars for doing maintenance and X dollars for doing doing new product. Well, that might not be the right decision. Mm -hmm. And so you have an opportunity now. So what we look at is when we're starting, we need the exceptions uh, to get going. We need them to, to for things to take hold. Mm -hmm. Then you can ask yourself, what do we what can we exploit? Mm -hmm. You know, what can now that we're trustworthy in this new way? What can we do better, faster, you know, than we ever we've ever done before? And so you know, taking on funding models is one of the things we can Very start nice. to do. And so get into, get away from annual cycle planning. Yeah. Um, I know that's a big, scary thing for people, but sure. when you have a really predictable, trustworthy system that can change, um, we can get into quarterly planning. Yeah. And we can start to measure value and that we've earned trust with the business. There's all kinds of things we can now do 
mm-hmm. that we've hit that critical mass and people trust it and and the vibe is different right the trust is different in the system yeah i know we're still thinking through some of this about how to talk with it but we are starting to kind of um coalesce around the language with with our current clients and within leading agile so summit one is around once the system is predictable you know what do we start to deconstruct um the next summit I think we're going to land on is around making better bets, right? So at the point you can make you can make smaller bets, right? You can reduce batch size. Then what does it mean to make better bets? So now we have a, like we have whole organizations, thousands of people that can deliver on six week to twelve week boundaries. Yeah. What does that enable the organization to do at that point? So rewinding a little bit, you said okay. something I think was important. Um, the it's you can deconstruct, but you can also construct. Okay. So there are opportunities to do both, right? Oh, to dismantle okay, cool. the yeah. thing that you were doing. So I'll give you an example of the Summit One opportunity, right? When we're starting the Base Camp Expedition journey, mostly we have skeptics. Mm-hmm. Um, few cynics we run into once in mm-hmm. a while, but mostly skeptics. Yeah. And so we have to show them the proof before they're going to believe. Yeah. And we ostensibly do that. We get through and they start to say, hey, I get it. This is better. I kind of get what we're doing here and they mm-hmm. get excited about it. But when we set up, we couldn't necessarily get in and have the same kind of relationship and, and involvement with the business. We got enough, mm-hmm. right? We operated with enough trust with the business so that they'll, they'll they try created, it with they us. They created the space to try. They'll create some yeah, space to sure. try, Yeah. Um, but we got to kind of show them it works, right? Mm-hmm. Once we show them it works, now there's things we can go do with the business to really amplify our product management capability. Okay. Right? So so we can deconstruct some of the 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 low trust structure in the organization, right? The ecosystem mm-hmm. stuff. We can also start to build on that trust and say, okay, how do we capitalize? Mm-hmm. What can we do better? What can, how do we get the business in? How do we, you know, make this, uh, like there, a lot of times there are job architecture questions. Like if I'm going to be a product manager and I'm from the business, what's my career path? Right. Um, or do I do this full time? You, sometimes you get the folks who are available versus mm-hmm. the ones that really need to be the investors for mm-hmm. that, you know, for those products. So there's ways to actually now say, okay, we have trust in the system. What can we do? Mm-hmm. Right? So it's both about taking down the low yeah, trust, sure. but then okay. building up the high trust Okay. at the same time. So when, when it comes to the, uh, the making better bets piece, um, many of our customers, all of our customers, really, I don't think we've, well, I'll just say many of our customers, when we encounter them are very much, they're used to the project mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to think of these projects. So project product manager comes up and says, I want to add these capabilities and let me get scope, time, cost, funding, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. most of these things are like snowballs, right? Yeah. Um, because when we, when we come into a system, you get one funding window. Mm-hmm. And when the, when that funding window is open, you're going to get everything you can, because you know, you're just not going to get another tilt at that wheel. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, so you get the the congressional bill of yeah. things that yeah. people want to yeah. get done, right? Yeah. Every constituency has something in there. Yeah. So these are, you know, very, very large things that come into these systems. They tend to be uh, very, com- you know, they're, they're composed of many smaller things mm-hmm. that each ha- is an opportunity to, you know, to go get value. To act- there's, a, there's value propositions embedded. You know, I did a... You know, prior to leading Agile, I did a, something uh, at a large auto manufacturer in Detroit um, in 2007. And uh, they brought in something they couldn't build turn by turn. Mm-hmm. And it was just too much money, too much money, too much money every, t- every time they took it uh, to the business. So I came in um, and I looked at it and I decomposed it. 
they were trying to do like 13 different things mm -hmm. from a business perspective in there. Yeah. And all they really, you know, the, the business case was just in, you know, consumer turn by turn mm -hmm. capability. Mm -hmm. But there were 12 other value props. They were, yeah. they were upgrading the data centers. They were like, there's all this stuff that was, that was jammed in there. And when I showed them that decomposition, they said, well, why don't we just do that? And they built it. Right. So, so are you saying, and so I'm going to take a chance here, but the, basically the make better bets is really exploiting the organization's ability to do things in smaller batches, exploiting this newfound trust with the business to be able to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to operate in different funding models and, and shorter cycles and things like that. So it really becomes almost like we make better bets by putting smaller things in the system and learning faster. Is that kind of where it's you're a big part of it? It's a okay. big part of it. You've got uh, so you could think about it as um, once we've we've got some trust and the business trusts and IT trusts, frankly, that we're not trying to just take stuff away from them mm -hmm. when we're doing when we're doing work. You can get into a couple different conversations. One is uh, you know so like there's a, a lot of push around OKRs. Are the how are the things that you're asking okay. for aligned in whole to our strategy? Mm -hmm. Are they you know are they pushing our strategy forward or are they something tangential to that? So you can make a decision um, with the business in whole about, you know, an entire initiative. You know, it's just, does this thing map or doesn't, you mm -hmm. know, where does it fall? And, you know, you can have a cut line that things can fall below then with the business. So this um, is where kind of the OKR, KPIs, strategy, articulation, strategy, delegation right. yeah. starts to come in. Okay. So once you have that cut line um, of the things that aren't really pushing your your strategy forward, aren't don't have the, re the required rate of return, right? The, mm -hmm. They're just not the things that, you know, you're going to focus your capacity on. You have a you have a set of things left over. And those things that are left over tend to still be what we see very large, you know, composed monoliths of many mm -hmm. value propositions. Mm -hmm. So take that list of things and say, how do we decompose this by value prop? Mm -hmm. Like, Who are we trying to take care of? What are we trying to help them do? What do we get when we do that? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the options to do it? What do we get? And you can start to decompose those large congressional riders. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't attacked the funding problem mm -hmm. and they think they're only going to get one tilt at the wheel, mm -hmm. they're not going to go there with you. Right. So that's why you have to look at, OK, you know, how do I get trust around the funding mm -hmm. so that we can always revisit and learn and come back and, and sweep mm, up okay. new, cap new, new opportunity? So so it's really a multi-step process yeah. of getting to more, you know, to more rapid, more value dense um, more high quality and more impactful, you know, yeah. strategic. Well, the things. hypothesis around the base camp story, and it was really interesting because this was like really in the early stages of leading agile, where we were really trying to figure out how to, you know, as a, as a consultancy build trust with our clients. Right. So we would come in and really quickly stabilize the delivery system, get it predictable. And then we'd start working on batch size. But what we knew at the end of the day is we had to start figuring out how to break dependencies. And then we had to start figuring out how to fund complete teams. And we had to then let them start to inspect and adapt. And so there was an implied precedence there because you couldn't take these big tangled up organizations and just flip the switch overnight. You had to start to layer in capability. And as you built trust um, and you built capability, you could ask for permission to do more, right? We could start to ask the organization to change even further. So what I'm hearing you say is that there's a precedence to this, um, the things that you can do at Summit One once the organization is predictable. And then once you've got it to where like you've changed some of the budgeting and funding and things like that, 
Now we can take it to the next step. Does, it, does that make sense where I'm headed with that? That is what I'm saying. Yeah. The, you know, if you look at um, it's they're almost ecosystem dependencies mm -hmm. you could think about, yeah. right? That are killing yeah. speed and agility. <laughs> so if I only trust that the I'm going to get one shot at funding, mm -hmm. that's the only shot I'm going to get as a business yeah. person. I'm going to jam that thing up with everything yeah. I think I ever need. So in order for us to get to better, better bets, smaller batches, there's a piece of funding we have to go take care of. So it's fascinating, right? So, so there's the, the point that I keep wanting to drive home and I keep pulling it to it's, 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 there's a sequence to this that has to be in place because you just can't say we're going to, you know, ask the business not to show up with their big giant, you know, pork barrel loaded projects because they don't trust the system to be able to come back and get a tranche, another tranche in three months once they've delivered the value from the first one. But they, so we can't have that conversation until the funding and the planning cycles are done, but we can't have the funding and planning cycles conversations until the system is trustworthy and predictable, right? So that I think there's a, it's fascinating because the, the precedence, the order of events um, almost becomes like an, an, it, it's a necessary part of the story, the sequencing of it. And that's, yeah. you know, that, that's what emerged on the whiteboard during our uh, energized sessions yeah. in Snowboard. We have a lot of energized yeah. sessions. Yeah. Uh, we a lot of together. Yeah. sessions in this county. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that there is definitely precedence to what you have to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, trying to do everything at once, um, not only is it overwhelming, it's, it's uh, also like there, there's generally some laws of physics that that yeah. we have to like pay attention to here yeah. that certain things have to be done before other things can be done and other conditions can be put in place. You want a little so. fun fact is where the whole expedition to base camp metaphor and where all that came from and why I think it's relevant here. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Just, yeah. just go well, with I'm me on going. this one, right? Yeah. yeah go sure. with this one. So back, um, you know, I still, I still get out and do a lot of hiking. I don't really do like, like mountain climbing or anything like that per se, but I do get out and do a lot of hiking. And I don't know if you've ever, um, ever experienced where you're walking up a big giant hill. And it looks like you're walking to the top of it. But when you get to the top of that next hill, there's like another big giant hill behind that, right? So I call them false peaks. And it's a little bit, it's like, it's like you have to get the organization moving. But if they saw the entirety of the mountain, they might go, I don't know, right? So it's kind of like you talk about the entirety of the mountain, but like, let's just get to the top of this one. And then we can rest for a minute. And then we'll get to the top of the next one. And then we'll rest for a little bit. And that was the whole idea behind the expedition to base camp metaphor, because we have this group of people that are going on this journey. And when they get to a base camp, they can kind of go, they can reorient, let the system kind of stabilize and then go to the next base camp. But that was the reason why we used the mountain metaphor and the base camp metaphor initially is because you got to get to the first peak before you can get to the second peak before you can get to the third. But the point being is that sometimes you can't even see the second and third peak until you get predictable. So the idea was, is let's get people predictable. And then they can see how to start reducing batch size. Let's get them to reduce batch size. Then they can start to see how to begin to start to break dependencies, you know, once we got that far. And I think that's what's emerging at the summit level as well. Yeah. So the one of the things that I. Thanks for humoring me there. Yeah, sure. No, it's good. I did. Yeah, <laughs> certainly did. No. Uh, so one of the things that um, so it resonates, right? Yeah. The reason it resonates is. Um, there's a, you know, to get an organization to truly align itself to its customers and markets, right? Mm -hmm. Its capabilities and its systems. And it's a big journey. Huge. And so, um, and one of the things that I really enjoyed and still enjoy about leading agile is I, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is the, is this notion of safety. Mm -hmm. Like safety is a first class object. Yeah, for sure. Right. And so it is, it's as tangible as the air we breathe. 
Mm -hmm. And so uh, within that, um, you know, I had talked about that conversation I had with the CIO. I I never want to be the constraint when we're doing transformation. Like Mm -hmm. I don't want to say, okay, the CIO only wants to move this fast. Right. And so I want to know how fast they want to move. And so I talked to this individual and said, here's the 27 systems you're going to have to go Mm -hmm. change for, you know, to get to where you're going. And just that response was, Chris, 12 months, man, 10 to 12 months. Tell me what's not going to kill me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I knew what his range finder was, what, how far out he wanted to see. Mm -hmm. But if I exposed, and this is true with many of our customers, if I expose the whole journey, Mm -hmm. Um, if I would have told them day one, we need, we need to come in and we need to change how you're doing funding mm-hmm. that would have felt impossible for yeah. this organization Yeah, and they would have shut down. But once they got to predictable and there was trust and excitement and a lot of pride, frankly, well-earned pride on their part for what they'd accomplished, didn't seem quite so bad. Yeah. Right. It seemed doable. Felt like they could do it. They built yeah. some muscle memory. Right? Yeah. And so uh if well, you if, if you, I'm not understanding you, you could actually tell them about the whole journey, right? But but what this executive needed was what can we do in the next eight to twelve months, right? There are executives you can tell the whole journey uh, to. Okay. And then yeah. there are customers that if you tell them that journey, it will just be overwhelming. Yeah. Right. And so you don't want to overwhelm them. So you have to gauge, you know, what they're able to so handle. So sometimes it needs to be a little bit of a pull system instead it needs, of a push yeah, system. I mean, there's, yeah. And it's and it's different people can handle different levels of seeing the future and everything that has to get done. And so some people are energized by it and some people um, just overwhelmed. So I want to unpack this idea that you brought up around um, creating safety for change. Um, but before we go there, right? So we talked a little bit about the idea the summit one, establish trust, summit two, make better bets. Why did you sequence or why did we sequence the, um, you know, basically the aligned value streams, drive continuous feedback, sense and disrupt, right? So talk to me just at a high level about where it goes after the make better bets. So uh, what what the OKR systems and and the you know so going and, and defining those OKRs and mapping them to the you know the product teams that we have in the in the delivery the system of delivery what we're seeing is kind of what we thought we would see right which is uh, the value propositions that the organization is working on mm-hmm. they're cross cutting right so there's uh, the way the organization and most of our, our client organizations. Uh, have themselves set up it's usually some domain oriented or you know there's some way that they've organized themselves functionally or by domain right and when you look at if you were to coat the customer's feet with ink right they Mm -hmm. would walk right across that organization yeah and they'd step through a bunch of different parts of that organization that don't all report up to any specific leader mental right? models that never go away if i coded my customers feet with ink their footprints would be all <laughs> over everything all over yeah, well they they cut across yeah. uh, how the how the organization is set up right now well there's not even a there's not even a system of prioritization for that mm-hmm. like there's no place at the very top that that says all things have to be prioritized through this so we can actually like yeah. do these types of things. So there's a lot of tin cupping and there's a lot of like teamwork that has to happen outside of the system of delivery. A lot of, you know, agreement brokering mm-hmm. and political things that have to happen in order to even get those things done. Mm-hmm. And so you have the priority units and, and they're kind of in their stovepipes. And then you have the things that are trying to get done um, that cross those stovepipes. And so when we look at that and we start to say, okay, well, where do we want this organization? Where is it going to 
want to go strategically? What's it going to want to be able to do? Who's it going to want to be able to do that for? Um, we have to look at, okay, maybe this alignment isn't what we, you know, isn't, isn't the way we want to stay aligned. Mm -hmm. right? So we have to look at like, we want to reduce the we want to reduce the the surface area that all those footprints need to walk across. We do. We yeah. want to effectively push it down in the organization. Yeah. Right. So um, you know, pay attention to how how high in the organization you're orchestrating and how much. Yeah. And you want to basically encapsulate that, push that down to where um, you know the fewest number of teams. You know yeah. that. Uh, you know. Well, that, that was one of the things in. that I always thought was interesting about Safe. Right? Is that Safe talks about aligning around value streams, but most of the clients we walked into, there's just no way you could um, untangle the value streams early on because they all intersect. Right? They're all basically working upon like shared capabilities. So one of the things that you said early on that I thought was was re really powerful is that when you make all of the orchestration costs across the business capabilities really explicit, you can see what uh, what dependencies and what coordination is actually driving the expense, like what's creating the latency. And then you can reorganize business capabilities to push that decision-making down. But in effect, what you're doing there is you're aligning around value streams. So it almost becomes a very mechanized approach Organize around business capabilities, expose orchestration costs, figure out where orchestration costs are high, reorganize to reduce orchestration costs. That's a line around value streams. Yeah, but there's a couple of dimensions you have to pay okay. attention to. Um, so if you have a, a set of value propositions, a customer set mm -hmm. of customers and markets that you really want to, you're going you're gonna to put some strategic emphasis on that. Um, and, and it really is looking at your markets. Mm -hmm. Um, there are the, there are the products that you want to change to it, to satisfy those value propositions. And then there's the products you have to change because they're somehow stuck to the ones you want to change. Mm -hmm. So what we see is a lot of technical dependencies, a lot mm -hmm. of other dependencies too, but a lot of technical dependencies, specifically large applications. Um, so, you know, things that are 20, 30 years old have lived mm -hmm. and, and done their jobs, but, but when you look at them, um, taking pieces out mm -hmm. is not an easy thing to do. They could be ERP systems. They could be legacy custom apps. They could be a mm -hmm. lot of different things. But if we were to try to extract them, they have to be they have to be changed, built, tested, and released together. Mm -hmm. And so the, the you know the way organizations we find them tend to be you know organized is to make that orchestration low. Right. Well, when the value propositions start to cross cut that structure then we have a lot of orchestration to do because those big monoliths have to be released together. They have to be changed and released together. So as we start to look ahead, uh, we have to figure out, so we're, we're really, we're looking at this, this process of product extraction, mm -hmm. which is how do we identify the products that we need to deliver to those strategic value propositions? Um, how do we, we pull them out of their monolithic structures um, still, you know, so make sure they're integrated in and everything still works, but to be able to have those things basically release at a faster rate to be more responsive to move so to higher base camp. So, so here's what's interesting, right? So, so base camp three is break dependency. So again, what's in my head back in the day was you have 10 or 12 teams, right? They're probably operating on some sort of monolith. We start to break them, encapsulate them, you know, put APIs around them, whatever. So this is like that at like one level up, like around well, value streams across the enterprise. Yeah, so or? we need to, in effect, if you look at what Basecamp 3 is trying to do, mm -hmm. is it's, it's basically saying that these product teams need to be able to deliver independently of each mm -hmm. other, but still have quality, still have, yeah. like everything still has to be there. 
Um, once we've done that, what can we do to exploit that? Going mm -hmm. back to kind of the earlier point, well, we can start to take the you know specific products and organize them around you know specific value propositions mm -hmm. uh, and really decrease the amount of orchestration in the system. So if you think about it, there's the set of products that need to change um, in order to fulfill a value proposition. And then there's a set of products that have to change because they're stuck to those products. Right. We can start to cut those dependencies and say, okay, first of all, don't need to change all those other things anymore mm -hmm. um, because they're not stuck to the products that we're really interested in changing. And then how can we organize those products? Yeah. You know, are there platforms and are there experiential kind of value proposition specific products and structures that we want to form uh, in a way that really streamlines that that delivery, that value stream. So talk to me really briefly, and then I'm going to move on to some of the safety stuff. And I think we'll put a bow on this thing because it's going to be almost an hour here. So okay. um, drive continuous feedback and sense and disrupt. Where's your head on that? Because these are the least defined, right? Because this is we're progressively elaborating our understanding of this. So tell me what your current understanding is, knowing I won't hold you to it in three to six months. Because okay. we're going to learn more. All okay. right. So this is, uh, this is documented. So I, I, but I I'm getting I, on tape, I right? I, so I can yeah, at I least I have a reference here. point. So you all heard this. Um, I do believe that, you know, I'm, I'm watching what's happening in our customers where we're making these changes, Mike, and um, we've got, you know, we've got predictable delivery, like, you know, things are working and you know, we're making better bets. Um, there are still, you know, and it, so we're still kind of working through this whole notion of, um, you know, of product extraction and mm -hmm. things like that. So calling the ball, I do think that we're going to find that even the OKR system and the quarterly planning cycles that we're taking our customers into, um, you know, strategic quarterly yeah. planning, strategic uh, cycles are going to be too long for yeah. some of those customers and some of sure. that will yeah. be the bottleneck. Yeah. And so we're going to have to take some set of capabilities of products and teams to where they're just in direct delivery and feedback cycles with their customers. Which is really the promise of business agility at that strategic level being that tightly coupled to your client? Yeah, I think so. But okay. I think, you know, I think um, what will be interesting to me is how batch size reveals itself at yeah. that point. Because having, you know, and this is kind of where I grew up in this whole agile thing, right? Yeah. In my pillar days, having these teams delivering directly to customers, changing what you're doing every two days based on feedback, right? Yeah. Um, so we're getting feedback and we're changing and we're getting feedback. Um those problems uh, would be it would be hard to do that at scale. Yeah. Right. So I don't think I think as we move up this curve, we're going to find that, you know, we're probably dealing with problems that aren't quite as scaled. Yeah. Uh, in the problem set. And so individual teams, again, can kind of take those on or small product lines, you know, small sets of teams can take those things on. Yeah. Really in a direct just give them the money, mm -hmm. um, you know, have them work with the business and just keep delivering. Yeah. keep learning well that was the that was always the thing like i like on on some levels i almost feel like like myself as somebody who has you know been talking about this for 10 12 years like i've like on one level i always felt like i took a contrarian point of view to the rest of our industry but but i really don't think i did right i i think the the early agilist i think what you were doing at um pillar and and prior i think it was right and never argued with whether it was right. My question was, is that like, how do you get there? And I think that's really what we're starting to unpacking. It's like, yeah. you know, the guys that, you know, that signed the manifesto 20 years ago, they were right. Um, maybe just not 
pragmatic enough for me about how you begin to start to untangle and actually help some of these legacy customers. Yeah, I, right? I, think, I think there there's an interesting definition of there. Yeah. Right? Um, which is there isn't just Basecamp 4 or something. Yeah. There is an organization that's aligned to its customers and markets and yeah. where it needs to be predictable and, you know, kind of summit one, you know, base camp one kind of, you know, organizational design, that's where it is. And then where it needs to work in smaller batches, that's where it is. It's there is when you have an organization that not everything has to go yeah. you know, all that way. You know, so, so it's that true aligned state. And I look at in the, the last part of your your question was you know really the invest to learn piece. Right? Mm -hmm. So the, a lot of people think about lean startup type mm -hmm. capability. Yeah, for sure. What I notice with customers is as we look at their value propositions, um, and this is something that's near and dear to my heart because I've been dealing with this most of my career. I think I'm sure most people do. Um, there's usually a high sense of pride in one person's best guess mm -hmm. of what we should do. And if I look at the actual uh, level of certainty in the value propositions, um, many of the things that organizations make big bets on um, have super high uncertainty. Yeah. And so they, they try to scale before they even know what to do. Right. And the reason is because somebody thinks they know the market or somebody's you know an expert in something yeah. um, or the business wants you know something very large. But, but if you actually peel it back, the best thing to do is spend $10,000 or $20,000 to figure out whether that's even a good idea. Right. Even in a large organization, having that capability kind of at the front end of your value streams is a, is a little bit of a multiplexer mm -hmm. right? to say, okay, um, do we scale this one? Do we know enough about market or implementation to where we route this into our scaled organization yeah. and invest $2 million or $5 million in it? Or do we just take this one and say, wait a minute, could be a good idea, might not. Can we prove or disprove, get more information about this. Can we lower our uncertainty? So invest in lowering that uncertainty to say, okay, now we know this is the market. This is the value proposition. Here's the, but, you know. But here's the interesting thing. We've always understood that that's how we needed to operate. What we're really talking about is how do we create the conditions so that the organization can actually operate that way? It's also structure. Yeah. So there's structure and governance to it. Yeah. What do we, you know, where does it live? Maybe some metrics too. Well, it could be in some metrics structure there. Structure governance. Um, so crazy talk, Mike. It's crazy it's talk. Crazy man. talk. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think even in organizations that are very venerable large organizations, um, how you, you know, it's very tricky, right? How do I get an organization that can help me vet uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm. Reduce, reduce uncertainty, reduce risk. And how do I relate that to my scaled structure? Yeah. So that because uh, what happens is a lot of organizations, they'll set up these uh, these little kind of labs things or mm -hmm. lean startupy things and they'll go off and do stuff. Yeah. Sometimes that stuff that, you know, that they're thinking of or testing on their own. There's no one to own it. Yeah. Right. When they want to transition it. So um, I look at the bets that are coming through all of our customers portfolios. And, and it's clear to me, like some of those are way more uncertain than others. Yeah. And, even those bets would be, it would be good to test them. Yeah. Like say, let's not approve $10 million for this because we don't know enough about it. it. Sounds like a good idea. Can we just do 50,000? Yeah. Right. And figure out whether or not this is worth spending the other, you know, 900 plus or 9 million plus. So the, so the, you know, there's a structural hypothesis to that. Like, how does it relate? There's a governance hypothesis. Yeah. There's a metrics hypothesis too. How do you fit that whole organization together that has some, 
base camp one, base camp two, base camp three, base camp four, base camp five, all of those things working in concert based on the nature of the problem, based mm-hmm. on the nature of the, you know, of the, the solution, based on the nature yeah. of the organization. That is the there there, I think, yeah. is all of that calibrated. And then maybe just the, the, the little piece after that is the ability of that organization to stay calibrated. Yeah. Because the world isn't going to hang on a string for them. Right. Some things that used to be differentiating will change and some things that used to be commodity will become differentiating. Mm-hmm. And an organization not only needs to get aligned to its customers and markets, it needs to stay, stay aligned. aligned. Yeah, 100 percent. OK, so that's probably a great stopping place. But I'm going to just push one more little topic further and I want to explore something with you. It's kind of ironic because you're talking about the idea of you know, basically be able to make smaller bets, try things, learn from your markets, inspect and adapt, sense and disrupt, right? All the kinds of things we talk about. A little bit of the base camp to expedition model for us was, was a lot of that. It's like, it's like if you're going to go down this path of organizational change, don't try to boil the entire ocean, prove a thread, prove a thread, prove a thread. So a big part of expeditions to base camps or organizations to summits is about the ability to run small experiments, prove that it works, scale it up, and then as you scale it up, start to make the bigger organizational change. So we're not making these gigantic bets along the way. But I want to anchor that on safety. We have a couple of structures, right? The idea of base camps, summits. We talk a lot internally about the idea of outcomes-based plans. Um, Peaster might even be uh, involved in that. Talk a little bit um, about about how the leading agile change model creates safety and ground cover for change to do these things. Because we've talked about some really, really big changes in the organization that take a long time. Have you maintained safety and created um, and kept the energy high to be able to do this? Yeah, so um, I used to do a, a talk. Uh, I used to work for a company called Cengage Learning. And I, you know, was a, I ran product development there for a while. and. I would do a talk at conferences and I had a slide on the slide was an iron teddy bear. Okay. <laughs> thing weighs like 70 pounds, right? Okay. 90 pounds. Did you actually have a real one or was it was a slide? It was a picture of a cast iron teddy. You bear. just knew how much it weighed. So I wasn't and sure. And so, so um, okay. did my research. Okay. So okay. Uh, the metaphor I was giving people is that, you know, when we do this work, we're taking away their iron teddy bear. Okay. It's very, very comforting for, yeah. but it's heavy and bulky yeah. and hard to wield and okay. walk around with. Right. Okay. So they've got this heavyweight teddy bear and we're saying we got a better one. Okay. Right? And in that, so we're, you know, taking away the metaphor a little bit, right. We're, we're basically saying everything you've done, everything you've learned, right. Right now I need you to trust me. Yeah. Suspend right? disbelief. A little bit. So yeah. suspend disbelief. Yeah. Trust me. Um, you will get to a place where you feel that competence, that confidence, you know, that, you know, that all of that, you know, uh, clarity again, but you're going to be dissonant for a while. Mm-hmm. And in that dissonance, um, you know, just showing up, this is where I struggle with that pillar story. Like we just need to coach executives. Okay. Yeah. Like, and what, right? Yeah. So what is everybody going to go do? Yeah. So people have to, they have to first trust that they're going to be safe with you, right? That you've got a system, you've got a way to get them where they need to go, mm-hmm. right? To take care of their careers because everybody's got to feed their families and yeah, send their sure. kids to college and all that stuff. So, so just having empathy with that, um, all of the things that we have that are dovetailed together, and I believe are, um, I believe there's truth in them. Right? Mm-hmm. I believe that these are some 
laws of physics embedded mm -hmm. in, in what we're doing. They provide the path of that. Okay, I can't tell you what day you're going to feel safe again, mm -hmm. but I can tell you what the process is going to be mm -hmm. to get to safety and yeah. how it all works. Yeah. And so uh, I've so, always thought of that as like leading indicators and lagging indicators. Like, what are we doing to build trust and create safety as we go, knowing that the ultimate outcome in organizational performance is what's really going to create safety? Yeah. So not yeah. everything can be a moving part. Yeah. Right, when you're trying to feel safe. And so yeah. knowing that there's this structure with these people who who know how to run this system um, and there's an outcomes based plan and I go through these outcomes and I get these coaches and this is how we're working together. This is how we assess our progress. Mm -hmm. Having that much uh, discipline to it and having that much repeatability to it creates safety for people. Mm -hmm. um, just having coaches show up and coach stuff. Mm hmm. Uh, it's a black box. I don't know what are you going to coach me today? What am I going right. to learn tomorrow? You know, when are we going to be where we need to go? Right. So, so everything we have, you know, from the executive down to the work surface to me, um, provides clarity to people. This is what we have to do. Mm -hmm. Right. That clarity at least takes mystery out of some mystery out yeah. of that situation and, and creates, it doesn't create absolute safety because they still have yeah, to go so through the journey, yeah, yeah. but it does yep. take, um, it, you know, I, I use the space mountain metaphor from my pillar days. Okay. Right? So, um, we would take customers on space mountain rides. Uh, we'd bring in these XP teams and people who would train. There was no process to it. We would just like figure out what you needed and we'd start to coach it. Um, to our customers, that felt like Space Mountain. It's really dark. Mm -hmm. We're going fast. Yeah. I'm whipping around. I'm pretty yeah. sure I'm going to be okay at the end. You're hoping you're having fun. but <laughs> so, And, you know, at the end, I'm like, okay. Yeah. So maybe in a, in a Disney sense, that's a, that's a good experience. Yeah. But when you're bringing people through change and it's affecting their career and their livelihood, yeah. I can tell you they don't like it. Terrifying. Right? It's yeah. not. It is terrifying. And yeah. so we don't. I think, so having the lights on the way we do and the system that we have keeps, I think it keeps that very transparent for people. I like that. I like that expression. Yeah. It's like the system of transformation is like keeping the lights on for people. Yeah, it, do, yeah. it does. It creates, and it creates see where we're going. They can see where they're going. They're not whipping around and it doesn't feel like, like, I don't know what's happening to me and what, you know, whether I'm going to be safe at the end of this. Right. right? Right. Very cool. Well, thanks for coming down. This was sure. a great conversation. Appreciate always it. Always fun to, always fun to be down here. We'll do it again soon sometime. All right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. All right. See ya. Thank you.